HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Available seasonally at select Whole Foods markets. Learn more at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to a special edition of The Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network and the National Young Farmers Coalition. I'm your host, Lee Ullman, with my co-host, Alita Kelly. We work with a coalition of tens of thousands of farmers and advocates across the country calling for land justice, climate action, and a more equitable future for agriculture. On this special series, we're digging into the Farm Bill, an incredibly powerful, multi-billion dollar package of legislation. It influences what we eat, and so much more. Over the course of the series, we'll be talking to farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. We'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another Farm Bill gets made. We hope these stories from the front lines of our food system inspire you. Join us to shift power and change policy to support the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. The nutrition title, which was first added to the Farm Bill in 1973, is the costliest portion of the Farm Bill by far. Most of the funds are used to support the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. Because of the COVID pandemic and adjustments to SNAP benefit calculations, the nutrition title is projected to make up 84% of the next Farm Bill's total spending. That's a slight increase from 2018. SNAP helps more than 40 million low-income people provide food for their families each month. And some of those folks are farmers. And farmers are also uniquely positioned to directly provide nutritious food for the families in their communities who they know are struggling. In this episode, Alita and I dig into how the Farm Bill affects three farmers working on the front lines of food access. But first, we sat down with Mark Nicholson from Fair Food Network. Fair Food Network advocates for nutrition incentive programs like the Double Up Food Bucks program, which doubles the value of SNAP dollars at more than 900 farmers markets and grocery stores across the country. Here's Mark. I'm Mark Nicholson. I'm the Senior uh, Director of Policy for Fair Food Network. 
you know, at Fair Food Network, our mission is to grow community health and wealth through food. We are a Michigan-based uh, nonprofit that implements nutrition incentive programs. Uh, our branded program is the Double Up Food Bucks program. And we also engage in uh, impact investing work. Uh, so working with entrepreneurs and uh, you know, trying to direct financial resources to places that have been typically um, overlooked. How did SNAP first get included in the Farm Bill? Well, I don't have all the dates down. Uh, in general, we got to a point where there was a lot of just an ag policy regional competition and so trying to get folks to who are just working on agriculture agree to ag policy was becoming very difficult because those interests are very different, not so much by party, but really more by region. And at the same time, food assistance was something that I think folks were having to deal with more in, in urban settings. And so this was something that when uh, legislators figured, well, we've got to find a way to get bipartisan support for both agriculture and food programs, the decision was to really roll these into one. And so that's why folks, when they think of the farm bill, uh, because it mainly says farm in it, uh, they really don't consider that there really is so much more to it, particularly around food assistance. And I don't know if you want to call it an unholy alliance, but the intent was to put together programs that could find something that both sides of the aisle and regions across the country could find that they could support. And we, we see it playing out now that there can be pretty partisan views on food assistance. But I think what you're hearing from the, from the ag community in general is a large farm organizations going into this farm bill, they've been pretty pretty uh, candid about, we're not going to get a farm bill without having a strong SNAP or food assistance component to it. There's a, a real understanding, um, at least from folks who've done this for a while, that you can't really move one without the other. So I think it's clear why so much of the farm bill um, includes that, that big proportion of SNAP, because we need to feed our community and they, they deserve that support from us. Um, but can you help explain more um, the landscape of food security in the United States? Uh, you know, that's a great question because we've seen this um, really fluctuating. Um, so food insecurity was really hitting a peak after the 2008 financial crisis. It took, it took actually a number of years uh, for folks to work through whatever uh, resources they had. And so you really saw later on a peaking in 2013. And as we were uh, heading into the pandemic, we were seeing those numbers come down. And so, you know, having programs help keep folks on their feet. And it was when the pandemic hit then that all of a sudden, you know, we saw you know, a very significant increase again back in those numbers of folks that were experiencing food insecurity. And, you know, as of 2022, um, you know, it looked like over 40 million folks were food insecure in the country. Can you speak more into why these areas are experiencing food apartheid and what might that have to do with other food policy? You know, I guess the one way, the one way I do see this playing out is in the um, in the investment side, right? 
you know, in, in the food apartheid areas where you do have this history of systemic racism and lack of investment, um, that's where we believe there's areas for reinvestment. And so when you see programs like the Healthy Food Finance Initiative that was originally kind of conceived as something to, uh, to address food deserts, but was really focused primarily on retail and investing in retail, it kind of lacked that further context on, you know, you really need to be in investing more in the food system itself. And then even if you build it, what kind of resources do folks have to actually then go and buy especially healthy products there? So this combination of focusing financial resources for folks who've been left out of those investment um, structures those are definitely areas that we see as needing further investment. And one way we see doing that also is through, that, through the Healthy Finance Initiative. We engage in Michigan at this level through the Michigan Good Food Fund. Um, and so that is a statewide fund that's looking at reinvesting in underinvested communities, and particularly with a focus on, on BIPOC and women-led businesses. And it, you have to be creative about the tools you use there. It can't just be debt type of financing or the traditional financing models. And so the way we view it is, you know, really trying to figure out what those challenges are, providing those additional resources, you know, both one-on-one -on -one technical assistance and financial, and reinvest in, in the communities and the food system that has been disinvested in. And is the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, is that a part of the Farm Bill? Yes. The answer is yes. Are there other sort of opportunities that, that you've been involved with um, in the farm bill to expand access uh, to healthy food that also benefit farmers at the same time? You know, that's a great question because that's a lot of what we're focused on in this nutrition incentive space. This will be the fourth farm bill uh, that those programs have been really being expanded and built up. Uh, and one reason is because they do have this broad bipartisan support. You know, a program that's having triple wins of supporting families that do not have access to healthy fruits and vegetables, primarily because of financial barriers. And so providing the means to be able to bring home those products. Uh, and then, you know, directing and, and, and trying to channel those investments in the local economy and more directly in local farmers' pockets. So that's a program that I think does fit that well. It's addressing both food security and nutrition security specifically at the same time that it's also seeking to build up the, the economic investments, uh, you know, when it's at farmers' markets, uh, very much in the local economy, and then with retailers as we work to get them to increase purchases of local products, you know, directing those dollars back to the local uh, producers. If the pandemic showed us anything, it's that these programs are resources that folks want to be utilizing a lot more. So, for instance, you know, in Michigan, we saw a doubling of demand for the Michigan Double Up Food Bucks program during the pandemic to the, to the degree of having to pause the program in the last year 
because that demand was exceeding the funding that we had for it. If you look at just the economic impact of the program, uh, approximately $85 million was uh, generated through incentives across the country uh, last year. And that was over 100% increase from the previous year. So, you know, these programs, the biggest challenge really is how accessible they are because the current annual funding is around $50 million a year. Mm-hmm. If you think of the 40 million folks that rely on SNAP, really just scratches the surface of making them accessible to folks where they shop. Can you talk a little bit about what specifically you're advocating for in the Farm Bill right now? Absolutely. So one thing that we're trying to get folks to recognize and understand is nutrition incentive programs, they work. They have gone through national evaluation, and the data is showing that participants are consuming more fruits and vegetables than the average American. So when you think about just that overarching goal of nutrition security, if you think about the challenges that Americans face in just eating healthy, to identify a program that is actually having that outcome and impact is really a great starting point. And then the other part of the program that folks may not understand is purchase prescriptions. We're talking about the Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program. If I only called it GusNip, I apologize. That's some DC lingo. Uh, But GusNip includes both produce prescriptions and nutrition incentives at retail. So the other area we're focused on is some improvements to how produce prescriptions are implemented and, and evaluated so that that clinical data that is showing that folks that are in, you know, participating, increasing their consumption of fruit and vegetables are actually seeing improved health outcomes. Uh, so that's another area we're seeking to make some improvements on. What we're very excited about is the momentum that we're seeing on the Hill. And this is across both parties and in both chambers. And so we do have marker bills that have been introduced. So what we have for GUSNIP is in the House, we do have the GUSNIP Expansion Act. So that is a marker bill that was introduced by Rick Crawford from Arkansas and Dan Kildee from Michigan. So we have a bipartisan leads on it. And it's an important piece of the puzzle. It, it has a lot of the things we're trying to achieve but it does not have that increased funding to it. The other bill I'd like to just point out uh, is the Gusnip Improvement Act. That is a a bill that Senator Hirono introduced, and it really is a a comprehensive marker bill that includes a lot of the stakeholder community's priorities, including increasing funding uh, from the current uh, approximately $50 million a year to 150 million a year. You know, that's something that we were very excited to see introduced in the Senate. On the other side of nutrition incentives, you know, we definitely want to make sure that communities have access to healthy, culturally appropriate food. And usually the best ways for that to happen are through young, small, mid-sized farms in their area. So what types of opportunities are there to get young beginning BIPOC farmers more access to those communities? 
And I guess one thing in particular I'm curious about is farmers that don't work with retailers or farmers that don't go to markets and maybe they just have started with a CSA. Like, are they eligible to tap into some of those nutrition incentives programs? I think finding what resources and what what's going on locally is is a great uh, opportunity when folks are determining their business plans and, and where they're going to find a marketplace. Because ideally, if you can align with uh, a buyer that has the you know similar mission goals as you, then that's a, a great place to start. So, for instance, in Michigan, we we work to support. Um, you know, companies that are focused on, you know, buying from local producers and, and they may have a retail outlet. And so we also then want to make sure that then their customers have the capability to buy those products through an incentive program. And so that's, that's where incentives um, really do hold like a unique space as, as an opportunity to be impacting, you know, we're primarily young uh, you know, farmers may be starting out with, you know, you're not going to start delivering to a warehouse. You're going to be finding somebody um, that, you know, is interested in, in, in buying your products. I, you know, there's so many resources out there. The trick is trying to figure out who to align with. I think that, you know, certainly the National Sustainable Ag Coalition is, is a great kind of home for some of that. And they've got a lot of resources for folks when they're trying to find those markets. Some states are doing this on their own. You know, they might be using block grant funding from the Farm Bill. Um, they might be using some of these procurement programs. Some are still implementing programs from COVID relief. And so, and in many of those cases, they are trying to really lift up broad communities of, of producers. But now it's going to take organizing and grassroots and support to lift up the things that they got started that need to be pushed further. Linking farmers with opportunities to feed their communities and get paid to do this work is critical. We talked to some farmers about how they're engaging with food purchasing programs and SNAP. Here's Shannon, the rancher in Colorado that we heard from last episode. Another thing that would help us directly is expanding funding and access to local food purchasing programs for schools and hospitals and other institutions. You know, we work pretty closely with a, a number of food banks in our area to provide mostly ground beef to them and through our direct marketing business for our beef. And, and that's been really, really beneficial partnership for, for them and for us. And I really want to see those things continue. And I think I think everyone does. But what's difficult about it right now is that it's a little bit onerous to go after grant funding for those programs. And then oftentimes grant funding is not intended to be like, you know, a forever solution. And so any way that we can make that easier will help not only operations like ours, but local food security and local food access and just overall nutrition in our community as well. And I think there's a lot of producers that I know that would love to be able to sell to schools and food banks, but it's hard because, you know, for a number of reasons, like the, the price point doesn't quite work out and the narrow margins that, <laughs> that, we, that we live in, like most farmers and ranchers can't really afford to make a lot of donations, even as much as I think most of us would really love to. 
So those are two kind of direct things. I think two big picture things are, I <laughs> would love to see some different ag trade policies that really preference meat produced from farmers and ranchers in this country, utilizing really sound land stewardship, animal husbandry, and fair labor practices that I think the public all already agrees that they want to see. And I think most of us want to see those things, but the, the economic landscape that we live in, it's not an, a level playing field and it's not competitive for people who really kind of are trying to do it all. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hearst Ranch, in collaboration with Whole Foods Market, is proud to be the presenting sponsor of The Farm Report, a special HRN series in collaboration with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Tune in each week to hear from farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. They'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another farm bill gets made. Join the coalition to shift power and change policy for the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Banu Amun-Ra, farmer and seed keeper, also runs a local organization that addresses food security and advocacy in Colorado. Hi, my name is um, Benu Amun-Ra, and I live in the unceded lands of the Arapaho, Ute, uh, Cheyenne in Colorado. And I am a land access fellow with the National Young Farmers Coalition. And I am a generational farmer. I am a sea keeper, keeper also. And I run a nonprofit that focuses on mental health access, food security, and advocacy under Sacred Eco Center and Sassy Farms. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of the land that you're currently farming on? Uh, well, actually, I don't have land. I used to have land. My family owned about an acre of land in Horsetooth Reservoir in Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, in Larimer County. And we were literally across the way from the largest water reservoir in <laughs> that county. And I couldn't get any water to my land. <laughs> And so just, I guess, a short story. We wanted to develop the land um, into uh, a healing sanctuary, like a horticulture therapy farm for people with disabilities, BIPOC, LGBTQ communities, veterans also. And our issue was that we didn't have water going to the land. And in order to access the main water line, we had to bore underneath the highway to tap into that um, extension line. And it would require an engineer, all of these work permits, including a community meeting with our neighbors for the disturbances it was going to cost. And by the time we totaled everything, it cost more than the actual value of the property. And so, yeah, 
We just couldn't do it. And so with the pandemic, gentrification, property values going up, my mother was sick also. So we had to sell the land and we lost it. It's really hard to hear stories like Banu's. Many young and particularly BIPOC farmers lose family land and then they end up in less than ideal lease arrangements. We'll be delving deeper into this issue of equitable land access in a later episode. Despite the loss of the farm, Banu continues to find ways to feed the community and address food apartheid. You can't, <laughs> you can't get fed unless you have producers bringing you food. And so one of the things that was very apparent during the pandemic was food was just sitting there, not moving at a lot of the farms because they had contracts with restaurants or other distributors that would come and pick up the food and then distribute it that way. But when when that stopped, you just had farmers just sitting on tons of food. So that also um, brought attention to how broken our food supply chain is. It's, it's not sustainable. And so uh, with food apartheid, um, that is literally the system working against communities and just not being sustainable to be able to provide resources like food to those communities. There's like maybe a grocery store, maybe 10 miles away, if not 20, especially in the rural areas. It's just so hard to get access to food. So what we're thinking of that about is creating a network of local producers to fill that gap where you have local farmers, producers, who are working together to provide that fresh produce to those much needed areas. Uh, one of the things that was really helpful was when the government increased the benefits for SNAP. I also sit on the Community Council for Hunger-Free Colorado, and we addressed that. And as soon as they cut off the benefits, a lot of families started going hungry again. You know, we, COVID still exists. Uh, families are still starving. They are still struggling to make ends meet. They cannot put food on the table. I wanted to know more specifically how Benu sees the Farm Bill impacting farmers right now. Oh, wow. So I actually am a SNAP recipient, uh, received SNAP. So that is important first and foremost because it's hard to make ends meet. And also, as a farmer, I don't know everything. Um, like I said before, I am just starting out. I need technical assistance. I need a support system. But as a woman of color um, at a lot of intersection, I mean, I'm historically underserved, right? Um, I'm, I'm a beginner. Um, I live in probably one of um, the highest poverty areas, um, you know, where I, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, a lot of that stuff. So um, the Farm Bill does uh, or will help me in a lot of those areas when it comes to learning or continuing to be a farmer and a seed keeper, making sure that I am sustainable and can be self, you know, self-reliant. So yeah, it's really important for me. 
The last farmer I spoke with is Selena Ngozi Esakawu, a farmer from East Central Texas. I'm Selena Ngozi Esakawu, and I've been a grower for about 10 years now. Um, the name of my farm on our family land is Dry Bones Hill Farm. Right now, I am growing diversified vegetables on the family, on my maternal family land that's been in our family for 150 years. Wow. Tell me about the name of your farm. That's such a, such a great name. <laughs> yes. I went to a church service down here. It was probably in 2019. And the pastor was was preaching a sermon out of the Bible. Um, it's out of the book of Ezekiel. And the the name of that passage was the Valley of Dry Bones. And so it's in reference to my mother and I coming back to this family land and reconnecting with our ancestors and our ancestors being alive on this land and us by bringing other family members here, reviving our traditions of gatherings on our family land is just like that recalling of those ancestors that have lived, died, and and nourished themselves on the land. What kind of food access are you able to provide in your community? And how does, you know, your ability to farm impact your ability to do that? Yeah. So between my mother and I, we've been really heavy into value-added products and preserving food. She's the canner. She's the preserver. I'm the one that grows the food and I hand her bushels of tomatoes, right? And she makes beautiful sauces and cans of tomatoes and makes chutneys. And, and that's what we've been able to sell in the past when we lived in the city and we were working farmer's markets because we are growing at a small scale. Um, here, the produce just isn't coming the way that... Um, it had before because we are we have experienced droughts and high temperature this last um, couple of years, but we do what we can to still distribute food out. I live in a very, very, very small community in East Central Texas. It's probably less than 40 families. It's unincorporated. The closest grocery store is 20, 25 minutes away. You talk about food apartheid, like <laughs> we are extremely under-resourced from a variety of different things. But what keeps us resilient and going are the the, the growers that are um, producing on a small scale in their backyard right next to their houses. They may have cattle on the rest of their land, but they have, um, they're, they're growing beans, they're growing tomatoes, they're growing corn. And when we see each other, you know, at the height of zucchini season, we're passing that food along. That's what that looks like in reality with the, the scale that I'm at with combating uh, issues with climate change, with not having ready, ready access to uh, farmer's markets. That looks, that still is a lot of canning food and preservation, um, making sure that we still have opportunities to share our food out because that's just what we do in our community. So redistribution is really huge. We have gatherings at the church and we bring food that comes from our, our yards, things that we have in access, and we share that uh, amongst community on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, a big part of the farm bill, which is a spending bill, goes to programs like SNAP. So do you oh. interact with SNAP at all? Um, 
<laughs> yes, I laugh because SNAP is keeping me employed. Like that, that's that funny. And it's so it's so necessary. I laugh because um, it's an important aspect of the work that I've been doing for the last couple of years. Currently, I am um, working with a food bank and I help people sign up for benefits such as SNAP. That's the largest portion of assistance and application assistance I provide. I've been doing work with SNAP for, for years now. Prior to this job, I was working with farmers markets to help them promote um, the SNAP program at farmers markets. A lot of people don't know that when you get SNAP, you can also spend that money at farmers markets that, um, that um, can take um, that SNAP card. So it's, it's even more important that we ensure that those SNAP dollars do not go away. We've seen a huge decrease um, just within the last few months um, because, you know, the COVID era policies are um, have shifted. But price of food has gone up. It's still going up. Um, and and issues that act, um, that farmers are experiencing um, are still going to cause the, the food prices to go up. And so Again, it's a pivotal part of the farm bill that those SNAP dollars get increased um, because people in my community, my immediate community, they need that extra support when it comes to putting food on the table. I've used SNAP myself a couple of different times in my life, and it's helped immensely just within the three months I've been eligible for it in order for me to get back on my feet to ensure that you know I can, I can still eat nutritious food that I have a choice in what I want to put on my table. Um, so I, I really value the fact that you asked me that question because that, that hits very deep with me because it has been a passion of mine to promote that, that program and to help people access SNAP. As a farmer, are there challenges um, to being able to accept SNAP and are there ways that it could be, could be made um, easier? Yes, there are programs, luckily, now that um, promote uh, SNAP at farmers markets to try to uh, make sure that people who do have access to, to SNAP dollars can spend it at farmers markets. Um, the farmers that I know personally have definitely benefited from having a wider consumer base. If you are a farmer, but you are not engaged in farmer's markets that accept SNAP, you yourself as an individual farmer can also accept SNAP. So that's something that I have not explored right now. I'm, I'm still working to scale up. This is three years in, in the making for me growing out here. And there, there are a lot of things that I'm still navigating to get back to, to the market with. It's a completely different community than what I was growing in before. So, um, but definitely when I get to that scale, I would love to access, um, to make sure that people who um, do use SNAP have access to my food, for sure. We know young farmers across the country are motivated by social justice. Many choose to do the work that they do because they care about the health of their communities. And as we heard from Mark, Shannon, Benu, and Selena, without farmers, our safety nets like SNAP literally can't exist. And it's not just about feeding people. In our next episode, we'll talk about how the Farm Bill impacts urban agriculture. We'll take a look at how urban growers are sustaining their communities by addressing food apartheid, training the next generation of farmers, supporting local economies, and so much more.
The Farm Report is hosted by Lee Ullman and Alita Kelly. We're produced by Lee Ullman, Evan Flom, and H. Conley. We're edited by Hannah Beal and H. Conley. Audio engineering is by Armin Spengen and H. Conley. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The National Young Farmers Coalition is shifting power and changing policy to more equitably resource our new generation of working farmers. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you stream your shows and share it with someone you think would like to join the Young Farmers Movement. You can follow us on Instagram at heritage underscore radio and at Young Farmers or take action at youngfarmers.org slash advocate. Consider becoming a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition today for only a dollar a year at youngfarmers.org slash join. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Subscribe to The Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network wherever you listen to podcasts.